Well, this morning we are in Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 20 or 14 to 29. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Continuing to look at the life and ministry of Jesus uh, as he lived on earth. Uh, before we read, uh, let's pray that the Spirit of God would be at work within us this morning. <clears throat> Lord God, uh, we are people who are helpless. Uh, we are people who need your Spirit in this time here to, um, to hear what you have to say to us clearly. Uh, the man preaching here is someone who uh, needs your spirit to enable him to proclaim your word uh, with conviction and with truth and with love. We are gathered here to hear from you. Uh, your life-giving spirit uh, who has remade, um, who has remade us and is continuing to remake us, uh, we need him in this time uh, to point us clearly to Jesus Christ. And to bring him to us here. Father, hear our prayers in the name of Jesus. And we want him to be glorified in this time, not ourselves. Amen. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. This is God's word. And King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, <clears throat> she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish. And I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Amen. <clears throat> Can I get my water quickly? <clears throat> well, imagine if you could be given a peek into what other people thought about you. Uh, not only friends, not only family, but acquaintances who you run into. Coworkers, <clears throat> your neighbors, 
How about your, your kids' friends and their parents? Is that something that you would be afraid to do, or would you find it interesting or enlightening? Would it be affirming to you, <clears throat> or would it give you a complex? <clears throat> well, either way, this is what we are given regarding Jesus here. Last week, so picking up here, last week we read about how the disciples were sent out by him to minister in his name and on his behalf. They were to preach and do works in his name. He was the source of their sending, and he was the center of their ministry. And now we see, picking up here in verse 14, that it was his name, the name of Jesus, the name and reputation of Jesus that grew and spread across the, the, the land. It wasn't the disciples who gained uh, a reputation, but it was Jesus. His name became known, even more known than it was before throughout the greater region of Galilee. They served and they ministered in his name. It was all about Jesus. The message they gave was his. The authority that they had to cast out demons and heal came from him. And as Jesus had been bringing in these tangible displays of the kingdom of God, the message of repentance and of faith being embraced, the wholeness and healing of the kingdom made evident among the people, now also the disciples are spreading it. And this is where, really for the first time in Mark, that we're given a glimpse into the widespread public opinion about Jesus. Jesus had been <clears throat> intent on revealing himself personally and through the means of his disciples. So how has that been interpreted so far? Well, there are different opinions here. We had John the Baptist is raised, foreshadowing the events of his death here, which are soon to be detailed. But John the Baptist is raised. Now, was this a, little, a literal resurrection? It's unclear if it was literal or not in the, in the, the minds of these people. But in the least... He was someone who came, uh, who arose after him with his mantle and with his spirit. Well, maybe he was Elijah. Maybe this is Elijah, a prophet who was said to have, who was going to be coming again, or someone like him in spirit, procl uh, proclaiming a kingdom of hope, proclaiming the kingdom of God's judgment, but also his renewal. Or people also say, well, I mean, he's a prophet like the Old Testament prophets. Someone who warned the people, but also gave hope in the promises of God and called them to faithfulness. And all of them here, speaking in advance of the kingdom of God, yet all of these ideas and all of these opinions about Jesus were still wrong. He wasn't someone heralding the kingdom, but the, kingdom him, the king himself who was ushering it in. And that wasn't the fault of Jesus that he was misunderstood, but it was that of the hearers. But in particular in this passage, we're given the perspective of one man in particular. Herod, the ruler over Galilee. A word reaches even the, the royal halls. And what does Herod think about Jesus? Who does he think that he is? Well, he falls into the John the Baptist camp. But primarily out of fear. Oh no, it's John. Raised from the dead after I had him executed... And now he's come back to haunt me. The thoughts of a man with a guilty conscience. And he's deeply shaken by the news of Jesus. But it's also because his kingdom is threatened. His power, his influence, his rule is being confronted and threatened by a rival kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God. And if Jesus' name had been spreading, then no doubt the news of his kingdom that he preached 
would also have been spreading. And Herod and the same would have heard the reports about this new foreign kingdom coming not only in word, but coming in deed. And whatever it was, it was a threat to him. A threat that you fear because there's something deeply unsettling about it. What we see here is an example of the kingdom of God shaking the kingdom of man. The eternal, righteous, holy kingdom of radical newness unsettling the kingdoms of this earth built by humanity and their opposition to God. Kingdoms founded on pride and human autonomy. Kingdoms acting for the glory of humanity rather than the glory of God. Kingdoms that believe themselves to be the hope of the world yet are ultimately weak and are riddled with inabilities. But like the disciples being sent... When the church ministers Christ, it shakes the foundations of the world's kingdoms. As the temporal kingdom's foundations are shaken, the cracks are revealed, and it causes us to ask, which kingdom will I align with? Where will my allegiances lie? Which kingdom is really my hope? And John stands in the middle of this conflict, but not as a passive man. Although he wasn't sent out by Jesus in his name... And like the disciples were, he still was heralding the coming of the kingdom as the the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And he cried out in advance for the king. He preached repentance and preparation. And he lost his life in the middle of this conflict. And it may have seemed as if the kingdom of God suffered a blow with this mighty servant being executed. But that wasn't the case at all. Rather, all this happened because the kingdom of man acted out of fear before the kingdom of God. So we have here two rival kingdoms. Two rival kingdoms here. What does the kingdom of God do to the kingdom of man? Well, the first thing it does is it shakes the private conscience. It shakes the private conscience. What got John in trouble with Herod in the first place was that he called him out for his sin. For marrying Herodias, his sister-in-law, the wife of his brother Philip. And what happened was that he had seduced her and then got her to leave Philip and then marry him instead. And obviously this would have made some family gatherings a little bit awkward. But more importantly, this was sin and sin to a gross degree. Now the the Levitical law forbade, forbade marrying the wife of a brother unless there were clear circumstances of his death and they had no children And the reason why the the Israelite law mattered here to Herod was because the royal family to which he was a part of, the Hasmoneans, they were considered half Jewish. Either way, they weren't Gentile and they lived in a Jewish society. But it doesn't take Leviticus to tell us that, that this is wrong. It didn't take Leviticus to inform Herod that this was wrong. Because at its core, this was a marriage that was built not only upon adultery, but incest. This would be a scandalous thing happening even by today's standards. And so John saw this notorious sin happening by Herod the king, and he called him out on it. Not writing blog posts, not sending letters to the editor, not picketing outside the royal palace, but he actually confronts him to his face about the sin. And Herod does what we'd all feel like doing, then apart from the convicting grace of the Spirit. He throws him in the dungeon. He very well may have had him executed right there, except for one thing. He feared John. 
He recognized that this wasn't just any man, but this was a holy and a righteous man. John made Herod afraid because of his righteousness. And that's what holiness does to people. It makes them afraid. They don't understand. <clears throat> and we fear the things that we don't understand. <clears throat> John wasn't being judgmental. He was speaking on a matter of righteousness and to bring about repentance. It was a matter of personal righteousness for them. They had committed wrongs. They had offended marriage. They had offended the God who instituted marriage for his good purposes. And they had also brought condemnation on themselves. And they had wronged one another also in this act. And they had also committed wrongs against Philip. And certainly they knew all of this was wrong. John wasn't informing them of anything new or of the errors they made. But he was calling them out for what they deliberately did. And they got upset. And perhaps even Herod felt some guilt or shame because he feared the righteousness of John. Righteousness often makes people upset. It catches us off guard and it doesn't let us get too comfortable as it shows us our own shortcomings. It's hard to be comfortable in the presence of true righteousness. It shakes us and it has a way of bringing up all of our inner misguided and idolatrous and self-centered desires that have lain hidden underneath the surface. It's as if our insides are like a snow globe. And then our desires are the little flakes that inside that have all settled to the bottom. And they may not be apparent, but then we encounter deep righteousness. True righteousness, and it shakes us. And suddenly then all of our hidden desires are disturbed and they're swirling around for us to see. And how much of what makes us <clears throat> upset is that it brings our desires to the surface. We don't like what we see. They bring shame or shock or anger or we try to justify them. We say that's just part of who I am or that's because of the situation that I am or it's because of what happened to me. And we discover that those desires might even drive our interpretation of life and ourselves. And sometimes even using the word of God to justify them. But it doesn't just shake the private conscience. The kingdom of God also, second, shakes the public conscience. It also shakes the public conscience. Because the kingdom of God isn't just about individuals, but it's also societal. It doesn't only address <clears throat> the sins of individuals, but it also addresses the sins of society. The sinful assumptions and desires of the culture in which individuals reside. See, this wasn't just about Herod. This was also about the society in which he lived. And in this instance, the societal sin that we see was the glorification of sex. We see throughout all of these events the manifestation of an overly sexualized culture among the social elites. We have, first of all, the immoral, adulterous a marriage between Herod and Herodias. And what drove it? Desire. Right? It wasn't a respect for marriage and commitment. And even though this was a scandalous affair, no one stepped in to intervene or tell them that this was a bad idea. In fact, perhaps it was even the opposite that they told them. Herod, follow your heart. All of them told them this, this stuff. No one told them that it was a bad idea except for John. And it got him thrown into prison and made an enemy. 
But that's only the beginning, though. Later, Herod throws a birthday party, and he invites all the social and political elites from his courts. A party where the only thing that would be flowing more freely than the alcohol would have been the hormones coursing through these lust-filled men. And this was expected at a party like this. Lots of wine to fuel the erotic fires burning within them. And the expectation of sexualized entertainment, which we see here. Women and girls dancing in lewd ways that excited these men and degraded them as nothing more than objects of desire. And who comes in to dance for these men but Herodias' own daughter? And age-wise, she would have only been a teen. Dancing in this manner before these men and to great approval. And with Herod there too, her stepfather and her uncle. And he was immensely pleased by her, it says. See, we see all of the layers of this sexually perverse culture. And no one stepped in to ask if perhaps have we gone a little bit too far? And if that's not bad enough, it's implied that Herodias sent her own daughter in to dance. Ever since John had called, called her and Herod out for their marriage, she burned with this desire for John to be executed, and she waited patiently for her opportunity. And this was part of her plan then to have her, him put to death. And she goes so far as to even exploit her daughter and put her in a compromising position in order to fulfill her own wicked plan of revenge. So here's a social structure that's driven by sexuality and desire. It seems as if anything goes. Was anything too far? Was there anything that overruled the cultural assumption that sexual desire was the highest priority? Sounds familiar. The cultural assumptions at this societal level are similar to the widespread cultural assumptions of our society today. The kingdom of man is driven by desire no matter which historical era you look at it, or you look at even, even our own so let's not pat ourselves on the collective cultural back for being more enlightened. People are just the same as they always have been, no matter what point in history. Right, sex drives Western society today, just as it did 2,000 years ago. And the only difference is that while it may have been in, in, in here right now, uh, or in, in the scriptures here, have been most celebrated amongst the cultural elites, now though it openly drives widespread society today. And let's also remember what John did. As a herald of the kingdom of God about to dawn on the horizon, he confronted this culture head on. The kingdom of God had something to say about all of this. And John wasn't afraid to bring up this matter to Herod. It wasn't anything different than he had been doing all along in his ministry. It was the same message, but this time to Herod. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, our words, our witness to a perverse culture isn't any different than we do normally or that we speak normally. We say the same things rooted in God's word and we give people the same Jesus. As the gospel goes forth and the kingdom of God is heralded and it's spread over and against the kingdom of man, it takes a serious posture. These are important words of righteousness but it doesn't have to be an adversarial posture. Because the message and the goal is the same. Repent for your sins to be forgiven and to find satisfaction in the kingdom of God. 
And so decrying the sins of society without giving the hope of Jesus is only speaking a half-truth. It tears down, but it doesn't rebuild. It doesn't give an alternate hope or display the goodness of the truth. In fact, even the Old Testament prophets and all of the scathing words that they had from the Lord, they also gave the people hope of heartfelt repentance and returning to him. And Jesus and his kingdom and his gospel affects all things in life, even human sexuality. It's a kingdom of righteousness that goes all the way to the heart and a kingdom which speaks righteousness into all areas of life. It shakes the assumptions of the kingdom of man. And yet, Jesus came not only to liberate individuals, but also to be a refuge for those who have been broken by the kingdom of man. Who have tasted what they've been fed and have been left chewed up and spit out by the false promises of autonomy from God. And he shows them a better way in his kingdom where he gives rest. And his kingdom is where wholeness is found. A wholeness which speaks grace even to our sexual lives and their brokenness. None of it is too far from redemption. And the third, what the kingdom does here is it reveals our insecurities. It reveals our insecurities. See, Herod was the king. He was the one who was in authority in this situation. But in this ironic twist, the king, though, we see was actually a captive. To what? What was he a captive of? To opinion. He makes an extravagant promise to Herodias' daughter after her dance. And she comes back from her mother with the request of John's head on a platter. And now he didn't want to execute John. Yes, he found something irritating about him. He feared him because of righteousness, but there's also something drawing about him. Righteousness can be irritating like a rock in our shoe, but it can also intrigue us because it's so foreign. And this is what Herod felt. He was greatly perplexed, but he heard him gladly, as it says in verse 20. He didn't want to kill John, and he was the king. He could have denied this request for John's head. And he felt incredible consternation and grief at her words. This is the last thing he wanted to do, but he did it anyways. Why? Public opinion. For him to do what was right in this situation, for him to do what was right for once, would have meant going back on his foolish, drunken, lust-filled promise that he had made before her and before all of his guests. And so the only way that he could save face before them all and all the rumors and the whisperings which would inevitably have arisen would be to carry it through. See, the king, the one who was supposed to have power, was actually the one who was enslaved. He wasn't free. He was enslaved to opinion, the opinion of others. The security that he sought was approval from others. Right? Isn't that wild that a king would, even a king would do that? But kings are just like us. They're people just like we are. And insecure, insecurity and, and opinion are no solid foundation for a society. Nor for us as individuals. The foundation is as soft as the shifting tides of opinions are. What happens when you live for other people's approval? You live out of fear. You don't act out of conviction. 
And not saying or doing the right thing in a particular, that a particular situation demands, but saying or doing whatever to come out looking okay. And a society that's built upon such insecurities has a foundation that is inherently stable. But if you already have approval from where it matters most, then you can act out of freedom. And you can act out of freedom. If you can do that, then you can live according to righteousness in even the most publicly demanding of situations. And that's one way that the gospel frees us. In Jesus Christ, by faith, we are given the highest and most loving approval by the Father. We are given, um, we are made his children. We are given adoption. In Jesus, his son, he regards us with the deepest care and the deepest approval. Just as he does with Jesus himself. The kingdom of God is built upon this never-changing bedrock of security and approval from God. And its kingdom participants can act with freedom and confidence in the world because of this approval. There's no need to act according to any other opinion than what God tells us in his word. We are free to live for righteousness. And that gives us the freedom to speak and act to a biblically informed conscience, even when it's hard. Opinion doesn't matter. We're not slaves to it. We're as free as nobility in the kingdom of God. What matters is righteousness because God loves righteousness. And then fourth, it also, the kingdom here, threatens the kingdom of man's perceived sovereignty. It threatens its perceived sovereignty. Herod had received the news of Jesus and his power going forth as his disciples were sent out. They were preaching the message of Jesus himself to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. They were performing works in his power. They were displaying the deeds of the kingdom, the, the wholeness and new creation of the kingdom. And certainly the news of this kingdom had reached Herod's ears. And what do you think it did with this man? Especially with his insecurities. His conscience welled up. His guilt flooded before his eyes. This is John coming back to haunt me. His perspective on who Jesus is was wrong. But there was an element, though, that touched on the truth. Jesus was a man, and he was a threat to his kingdom, and he was deeply afraid. And it shows how the, the kingdoms of this world truly aren't sovereign, no matter how much power they have. The kingdom of God becomes a threat to the kingdom of man's perceived sovereignty. It disturbs them. It's a sovereignty that goes beyond their reach. And it shakes us, too. Aren't we as in control as we thought we were? It's not pleasant to be shown your weaknesses and your inadequacies. And the same goes for rulers and kingdoms. Princes or earthly powers aren't deserving of your trust. Their hope is only as firm as the people who hold power are. And no one lives forever. No earthly kingdom or nation or government continues forever. Just take a look at history and you'll see this. Nations come, nations go, dynasties rise, dynasties fall. The great empires of history never last forever. Sometimes they last for a very long time. Sometimes they last for centuries. But they all inevitably meet their fate. Even those that are ruled by the people. Right? Masses of people are inherently unstable. And all of this here 
about nations coming, nations going, don't put your trust in it. All of this, all of this includes our country. It includes the United States. We're not exempt from this either. And as we see our own nation that is polarized and, being, and pulling itself apart, are we without hope? Are we distraught because perhaps, and, um, are we distraught uh, beyond just a mere sadness, but distraught because it seems like our hope is gone because we've made the United States and our government and a constitution part of our hope and trust that we're trusting more in that than the sovereignty of God? His sovereignty goes far beyond the sovereignty of this nation, of any nation, of any ruler, no matter who it is. The kingdom of Jesus spread by the disciples as they were sent. The news of which came to Herod, the news of the kingdom which comes to us. It is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And its king is the only true sovereign over all things. There are two there are echoes of two Old Testament stories in this passage. And one of them is a story in the Old Testament of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was this paradigmatic, paradigmatic a wicked king of Israel. And Jezebel was his equally wicked and plotting wife. And they hated the prophet Elijah, one of the last remaining faithful prophets in the land. And they tried to stamp him out. Especially Jezebel, she used her cunning and her ploys to try to put an end to the word of the Lord that threatened their sovereignty. But we also see echoes of the story of King Ahasuerus and Esther. Ahasuerus was a Persian king in the book of Esther who also had to save face before his own drunken and lust-filled court in a similar situation to Herod. And the king who was manipulated and played and entrapped by Haman to try to stamp out the Jewish people whom Haman hated. But then the Jewish people who were later saved by Esther. And in both stories, in fact, in, 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 in a lot of the stories, especially in the one of Esther, there are some of the same words that are spoken here by Herod. In both stories, there are kingdoms and sovereigns who tried to shake God's people for the exaltation of their own sakes against God's. Yet in both stories, these kingdoms and these rulers were powerless to thwart his kingdom, to derail the sovereign God, and they could not stop or shake his people. And the same happens here with Herod and John. The execution of John would not stifle righteousness... And it would not prevent the kingdom of God from its further advance into the world. It would prevail despite the execution of this herald of the kingdom. And neither would even the execution of the king himself stop it. John's execution and the burial of his body by his disciples here is an echo of what would happen to Jesus. There would soon come a day when Herod would have Jesus stand before him. The king of the rival kingdom and try his best to be amused by him after he was betrayed by Judas. But the king would remain silent, knowing full well who was really in control of the situation. And Herod would be hardened and he would send him back to the authorities to be executed, to be crucified upon a cross. And the religious leaders, threatened by his righteousness and infatuated with their own kingdoms and with public opinion, would have him to be crucified, trusting that it would put an end to him and the kingdom that he professed. 
But the king, though unjustly executed, could not be held by death. And his kingdom transcends death and it is full of life. Life that is given to its royal subjects. His kingdom shook the foundations of the world to its core on that morning of the resurrection. This was a kingdom that could not be shaken. And when we minister this Jesus and we, when we go forth in his kingdom and with, with the news of his kingdom, then we too are shaking the kingdoms of this world. In Acts chapter 17 verse 6, the early church is described as men who are turning the world upside down. Men who are turning the world upside down. When we go forth, we are exalting Jesus. And in a way that turns this world and its kingdoms upside down. When we minister in his name, we are affirming his lordship and sovereignty. And displaying a kingdom that will not end. A kingdom that is radical in its life. In its promises. In its hope. A kingdom that is radical in its ethics, in its righteousness, in its message. And a kingdom that is radical in its hope. As it takes broken people who are weak and wounded by the fall and by their sins. And then giving Jesus by his spirit who reconciles us to God the Father and into wholeness. And that's a kingdom alone which is worthy of all of our trust. Something that no kingdom of this world can even hold a candle to. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, which is, talks about the Lord putting his anointed one upon his throne. It ends with this, these words. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, <clears throat> be warned O rulers of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord God, Jesus, our Lord and King, you have a kingdom, you have brought in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that is founded upon your work, upon your promises, upon your hope. Father, thank you for giving that kingdom to Jesus and Jesus for giving it to us and spirit for you to continue to equip us and empower us to be bearers of this kingdom and also to have the hope of this kingdom settled in our own hearts. And we pray that you would make us people who not only love you, but are driven by your approval of us, not of opinions that the world might have of us. And so drive out all of the rival desires of the kingdom of man that might be within us. And to put our hope, our true hope, our lasting hope, firmly in the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ.